Hi, friends. I got back about a week and a half ago uh, from Israel. The UGA sponsored a trip for New York rabbis to go and under, try to understand and learn about that which was taking place in Israel. Uh, it's safe to say that two weeks ago when I left on this trip, I had no idea what was going on. Uh, and when I came back, I presented a 45-minute synopsis of the three days that we spent, four days really, that we spent on the ground. And there were so many people who have uh, subsequently uh, thanked me for clarifying what the issues are, and then so many others who were not able to be there and asked for uh, another synopsis. I figured it's easier just to try to give a condensed version of that talk, just to try to lay out what I learned. And one of the things that to me was so just confusing about this entire issue is that all the news reports assume that the American reader has some understanding of what's going on. And we're reading about protests and the country is on fire, uh, as has become very obvious to everyone. And yet an understanding of what are they fighting about is really elusive. So we spent four days. We learned uh, over and over again from we learned from people standing on the right and people standing on the left those in favor of the reforms and those against. Uh, and so I'd like to just present in a basic way. This is not going to be the essence of it because it is super complicated, but just to condense it down to a few of the basic points that everybody is fighting about. Just one word of introduction. Uh, we use the words right and left. And uh, many of the speakers that we, we listened to when we were in Israel pointed out that the right and left of Israel are different than the right and left of, is of America. And uh, well, I'll, I'll actually try to refer more to the pro-reform and those against the reform, even though in general those who are pro-reform are on the right side of the political spectrum in Israel, and those anti are on the left, more liberal uh, labor uh, side of the Israeli uh, political spectrum. What is going on? So, uh, it, like all things... There's a actual impetus that is the create, creation of all of this uh, a fire, so to speak. There's a spark that lit the fire. But then really, as all of the speakers that we heard, to, heard from, there's deep, deep fault lines that have been exposed through this judicial reform that has been introduced. So the judicial reform is the cause of it, but it's not really the issue. So let's start with what the judicial reform is to at least uh, explain that for a few moments and then try to uncover the, the fault lines that have been exposed by the judicial reforms, which is what you see on the streets, the passion, uh, unfortunately, the energy, and really I would say the hatred that you sometimes, that we're seeing on, uh, on the streets a little bit, or great fear would almost be another way of describing uh, that. Okay, so the reform is as follows. Uh, the Israeli democracy system needs a reform. One other quick word of introduction, and from my perspective, I'm, I like both sides are right and both sides are wrong, and we just need to find with cooler and reasonable rational heads, a place in the middle um, to figure this all out. That's how I'm going to be presenting it, which is really what I got from, uh, from this trip. The Israeli democratic system needs a reform. Democracy as a form of government in which the people elect their officials to govern them has, uh, is, it's the best system we have as of now, but it's not a perfect system. And it requires checks and balances, which as Americans, we are very familiar with that system in which there are three branches of government and each branch uh, checks and gives balance to the other so that no one branch takes or has too much power in it. In Israel, though, the system is very different because there the executive branch and the legislative branch is really the same. They're married to each other. The Knesset, after it's elected, 
that Knesset is the rep, is represented by the prime minister. You don't vote for the prime minister separate from the Knesset like it's done here in the States. So it's really one branch. The prime minister and the Knesset is one. And then the only other branch as a balance of power to the Knesset is the Supreme Court, the judiciary branch. What has happened in Israel over the last 30 years is actually known as a revolution, the Supreme Court revolution, in which over the last 30 years, the Supreme Court has taken more and more power in its ability to be a check and a balance against the power of the legislature, against the power of the Knesset. Now, that is a very significant development over the last 30 years, and it's pretty much agreed upon by all that that is what has happened. It was led by a a justice, a judge by the name of Aaron Barak, and it manifests itself as follows. In Israel, there is no Bill of Rights or Constitution. This is a major historical um, I don't, <laughs> fascination that somehow the country was founded anomaly without a constitution. It's a great historical story. In 1949, Ben-Gurion convened a meeting which would have been the Philadelphia 1776 equivalent and it didn't happen for various political reasons and other pressures. They never convened and they did not adopt a constitution. So there's a declaration of independence but there's no constitution to guide. Now the reason why that's so significant is because, for example, just to use it as a way of understanding, in the states, the Supreme Court's job is to uphold the Constitution. So anytime the government will pass a law, if the Supreme Court deems it unconstitutional, they have a right to step in and say, you're not allowed to do that. That goes against our Constitution or it goes against our Bill of Rights. And the, the Bill of Rights demands freedom for all, equality for all. And if a government were to pass a law that takes too much power or infringes upon an individual's right, the Supreme Court, using the Bill of Rights and the Constitution as their guide, has the right to step in. If there's a law that was passed that does not infringe upon the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, the Supreme Court doesn't hear the case because it's not relevant to them. If there's a law on foreign policy, for example, what does the Supreme Court have to do with it? It does not judge on things that are not within their jurisdiction. In Israel, there is no Bill of Rights. There is no uh, Constitution. They have developed over the years a series of what they call a translated basic laws, which work on, on guiding uh, freedoms um, and free, uh, rights of the individual citizens. But it doesn't have that same status like the Bill of Rights or like a Constitution. And not only does it not have that status, but in their attempt in Israel to cover the fact that they don't don't have a constitution, some of the things that the uh, Supreme Court have created are, uh, are, are as follows. If a law is not deemed reasonable, I don't have the exact translation uh, in he- of the Hebrew, but if, it, if it's deemed unreasonable, the Supreme Court can say, not because it violates a constitution, but because it's, that's an unreasonable law, they have the right to strike it, strike it down. Or if it's deemed to violate the dignity of man, the kavod ha'adam, they can say, you can't allow the Supreme, you, the Knesset, cannot pass this law because 
uh, it, it violates the dignity of mankind. Those two concepts, reasonableness and dignity, are very subjective concepts. And the Supreme Court has the right, when the Knesset passes a law, and they've done this over the last 30 years, I don't, I don't know the exact numbers how many times they've done it, but they've, they've used this, can strike down a law that the Knesset passes by using this, that's unreasonable, that violates the dignity of mankind. Now, that has a second component in that the court system right now, the way that Supreme Court justices are replaced when they get to their retirement age and then they're replaced, the Supreme Court basically um, replaces itself. The Supreme Court gets to decide who the next judge is going to be who's replacing the one who is now being retired, as opposed to the system which we're familiar with with the politicians appoint and then they're passed through Congress and Senate. Again, it's, it's not, I'm simplifying it based on my understanding of what we got because it's a little bit more complicated, but at the end of the day, the power to re- to replace a Supreme Court justice rests within the Supreme Court. And what that's created is over the last 30, 40, 50 years, it's a very labor, left-leaning, liberal, white Ashkenazi court, and it has maintained that throughout all of these years. So that the Mizrahi Svartic community has almost no representation in the Supreme Court. The Haredi world has no representation. The uh, labor um, excuse me, Lukid, right wing, have very little representation. So the courts has, over the last 40 years, two things have happened. They've expanded, oh, there's one more thing I need to add. They've expanded the right that they have to judge a case to almost anything. It's not limited to things which violate a constitution or a bill of rights. Almost any law that the Knesset passes has been incorporated under the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court to look at it and say, that doesn't work for us. We strike that down because it's not reasonable. It violates this ambiguous dignity principle. And so a court which is self-perpetuating, not representative of the population at large, has now become a very powerful force in that it's not elected by the people. The Knesset, which is elected by the people, are passing laws which are now being struck down by an unelected, um, non-elected group of self-perpetuating, left-leaning, non-fully representative judges who are deciding whether or not that law is valid or not. This has created a problem. And pretty much everybody at this point agrees that there is a problem in the system and that it needs to be reformed. So what has the reform that has been introduced has these two major components, several other minor components, the major, major components of the reform when they talk about judicial reform or judicial overhaul is A, that the judges will no longer be appointed by the Supreme Court, but instead will be appointed by the government, which of course right now is a right-wing Likud government, which means that the judges will now no longer be left-leaning labor representatives, but will switch, which is why the left is obviously very unhappy about that. But the right is claiming this is in the name of democracy. The elected officials should be the ones to appoint the judges. That's major reform number one, is to shift the, the way the judges are 
appointed. And major reform number two is what's known as the override principle, in which the Knesset should now be allowed to pass laws that are protected from the Supreme Court being able to strike them down. So that now, as, whereas the system is now, the Knesset can pass a law and the Supreme Court can look at it and say, we don't like that. That's not valid. It violates certain principles and strike it down. The Knesset can now pass laws with this override principle, which would, into the law, say, we pass this law with a simple majority in Knesset and it's protected from the Supreme Court. They cannot strike down this law. Both of those principles are being promoted by the current coalition, which is a right-wing coalition, in the name of democracy. They are saying, we are the champions of democracy because we are putting power back in the hands of the people, the people who have elected the government. This is a democratic state. All of us in the government have been elected a fair and square through democracy. And we, therefore, the government should, should choose the judges. And we should have the right to pass laws that are not struck down by the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, there's certain circumstances, of course, where the Supreme Court can, but there are other times where they could just say we're protected from them so that democracy wins. So the, the, the reform is being promoted as shifting the pendulum back to the side of democracy where it is not right now because an unelected body is dictating the terms of how things are going. Okay, that's how the, the pro-reform would present their case. There are obviously other elements uh, of that, but those are the most basics and the most you will find in the news. The obvious problem with this is if you have a government body that does not have a check, that does not have another body to keep it in order, it can pass whatever law it wants and there's no one to protect the rights of the citizens if their rights are now trampled upon by this government, which was elected, but who's gonna protect the citizens? So for example, the left is up in arms saying, this is not a democracy anymore. This is gonna become an aristocracy. It's gonna become a, uh, whatever they, all the different words you've seen them use in terms of an autocratic uh, tyranny in which this right-wing government can do whatever they want. Um, and, and we're not, uh, we have no, no one to stand up for us. So they're very, very, uh, as you can see in the streets, very passionate. Uh, they're afraid of their dignity. They're afraid of the LGBTQ community. What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to religious coercion? Uh, what's going to happen to all of the Arabs? All of those issues, they have a founded fear. They're not making this up that the right-wing coalition will pass laws against those groups, secular, Arab, LGBTQ, and there's no one to protect them um, from those. We'll get to some of them in a, uh, some of those other examples. I'll do them right now, uh, some of the examples. For example, if they were to uh, pass, some of the, one of the things that's on the table right now is uh, passing a law that the hospitals, you're not allowed to bring chametz into a hospital on, on Pesach. Um, so it, they want to make it into a law. It's been introduced as a law. So you say, as a religious Jew, that's nice. There should be able to have no chametz. Okay, that's very nice. What if you're a Christian? What if you're an Arab? What if you're secular? You're going to be thrown into jail for bringing, uh, as an Arab or a Christian, a piece of bread into a sick patient on, on Pesach? So the left 
enough to say, how could you, how could you pass a law that's going to throw a person into jail for a, a non-Jew for bringing, or, or forget about a Jew, you know, <laughs> how could you throw him into jail? They've introduced laws about modesty at the Kotel, also making it a jailable term. Again, this is not passed into law. This is the issues that they're up there posting in the streets for, that if you pass a law, because you happen to have a majority of 61 out of 120 Knesset members, you're going to pass a law that if you dress immodestly at the Kotel, then you go to jail for six months. And who defines what modesty is? The, the, the Haredi or the Hasidim define what modesty is? And other areas of religious Jew, a modern Orthodox Jew shows up in a skirt and a, and a, 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 a top that doesn't cover her elbows. You're going to throw her into jail from Shomer Shabbat? Who could decide that? So everybody's up in arms about how can there be uh, such a law with no checks or balances. The big issue, of course, that has the, um, the reform and conservative movements uh, supremely concerned is the, they will address the law of return as well. This is a fascinating issue as well. Currently, currently there are two systems in place in the state of Israel. One by the government to determine to be allowed to move to Israel. And that goes as follows. Anyone who's Jew is allowed to claim Jewishness and get automatic citizenship and permission to come to the land of Israel. Who defines that law of return in order to be a Jew? So that was based all the way back in the status quo in 1948. Anyone who has a grandparent uh, whether or not you were converted conservative, if you were conser- converted reform, if you're married to a Jew or you have a grandparent who's a Jew. So you can have actual non-Jews, like a person who says, I'm not Jewish, but I'm married to a Jew. Or a person who, my grandfather, my, fa- my father's father was a Jew who married a Christian, who had a Christian child, who gave birth to me. None of us have practiced Judaism at all, but my grandfather was a Jew. I've I, Automatic citizenship, you're granted citizenship into the land of Israel. That's how it works currently. That's the system as it is today. Once you're in Israel, if you want to get married, if you want to be assumed divorced, if you want anything Jewish, that's under the Rabbanut. That's not under the state, because in Israel, there's no such thing as separation as church and state. It's much more complicated, as we'll get to also in a few minutes. So therefore, the system as it is now has two components. To be determined to be a Jew by the government to be able to become a citizen is the law of return. Once you're there as a citizen, if you want to be defined as a Jew to get married, that's based on the Rabbanut, and they're going to use an orthodox understanding of what makes a Jew. So there's this dichotomy. If, on this, if this new bill passes, if this reform passes, I should say, and then the government were to pass a law to align those two and to say that we're now going to make them the same, the same law of return is going to be dictated not by what it was for the last 75 years, but by a halachic standard, that would mean all the reform, conservative, conversions, marriages, any of those issues will not be granted citizenship and will not be allowed into the land of Israel as Jews. They would have to prove orthodox status, not just to get married in Israel, but even to become a citizen. That obviously, goes without saying, would have a major, major impact on both of those worlds here in the States. And that's why there is a great existential crisis that this reform is uh, creating. So those are some of the issues in which even if one admits, yes, there needs to be reform because the Supreme Court has taken too much power, they can strike down all sorts of laws, um, 
But if we totally flip the pendulum and say now the government Knesset can pass whatever law they want and there's no one to strike it down, what if there happens to be a majority that has certain desires of, again, religious coercion against Arabs, against the Christians, against gender separation in public areas in which they might require? Um, and so you have all of those are up in arms right now protesting in the streets of this can't possibly be, this is not going to be the democratic liberal state that has existed until now. Now, which is true. It would make some significant changes if these laws were to pass. Okay, now that's, that's just the issue of the judicial reform. Again, it's a little bit more complicated than that, obviously, but those are the two major issues. A few days ago, right before Netanyahu pulled back, right now I'm recording this as, after he announced last night that he's going to put a pause on this, but he had already sort of said, what he had already said is that we're going to push forward the way that we appoint the judges, and I'll delay the override. He already had split these two issues, um, and now he put the entire thing, he tabled the entire issue. It's potentially because uh, the, the protests have gone so out of control that they might not think they have the 61 votes anymore. But that's a whole separate issue as to why he tabled it and what's going on. But that, that's, that's just the literal, like, well, what's happening? What does reform mean and what's it referring to? Those are the big issues that, reform, that the reform refers to. Who's appointing the judges? Is there an override clause that the Knesset can pass a law that's protected from the Supreme Court? Those are the two major ones. There are, of course, others, but those are the major ones. But what's really going on? What's really going on is far more significant than just uh, that actual element of the reform. Um, and there are a couple of levels of the what's really going on. As I mentioned, the, the fault lines that have been exposed. The left, uh, labor, has been in power for most of the state's existence um, until 77 when uh, Menachem Begin won for the first time and then again through most of the 90s. And many of the minority groups of Israel have felt very, very abandoned, if not outwardly attacked by the Supreme Court uh, for years. And each group has its own claims. The Haredim, who are mostly primarily interested in funding for their schools and yeshivas and to avoid the army, that's their major agenda. You have the religious Zionist uh, community, which is involved in their main concern is, of course, uh, settlements um, in what's known, of course, as the West Bank and in various areas. And they are really very much still very bitter about the famous or infamous disengagement of 2006 or five, if I have my dates correct, um, which they were kicked out of Gaza. Uh, and the Supreme Court did not come to their aid. That was their big, the Knesset passed the law and the Supreme Court, which gets involved in everything, basically said, we're allowed to be thrown out of our land, our cemeteries dug up, our schools closed down, our farms destroyed, and we were thrown into trailers. And they have not forgotten. I don't blame them. They have not forgotten. And it's a very, very bitter and angry, disenfranchised group in regards to the Supreme Court as far as that goes. The Mizrahi world of the Svardim have felt totally, uh, for, and for good reason again, totally abandoned totally underappreciated, misrepresented or underrepresented. And this, uh, so to speak, Ashkenazi, liberal, uh, white Jew who came in from Europe, which has been the main power, um, and there's this entire Mizrahi community who came in from, either who were already present in the land or came from other countries and don't share this socialist dream. Um, and then the Haredim, which is growing in number, the, the religious Zionists, they don't feel that that Supreme Court was on their side. Um, 
And now there is a turn in power. There has been a shift and this new coalition is formed from groups that haven't really had that kind of uh, power before. So uh, on a little bit you have, uh, and many of the speakers that we spoke to, uh, certainly the ones on the left, viewed it as a little bit of like a vengeance, of like a taking back. Uh, it's hard to deny that it, there's not a little bit of an element. In all things, there, there are complications and multi-layers of events, but on one hand it's like, you were in power and this is what you did to us, well now we're in power and we'll do uh, what we want to do. But much more than that is a, an ideological underpinning that's uh, taking place here as well. Um, and I would phrase that in, uh, and this is not my, my way of phrasing it, but just to borrow whether or not is Israel today a Jewish state or is it a state for the Jews? This is a very important question, whether or not it's a Jewish state or a state for the Jews. A state for the Jews would just mean it's a state like any other state. It runs into democratic principles. It's liberal. It's open-minded. It's Western. And it happens to be the home for the Jews. A Jewish state would mean that this is a unique place that's run based on Jewish law, Jewish principles, Jewish ethics. It's not just a state for the Jews, it's a Jewish state. And the state of Israel has had this complicated, complicated dynamic for many, many years, since its inception, really. Because there's no solution to this problem. In America, of course, there's separation of church and state, and that's just the way that it is, and everybody does their thing on a religious level. Israel has never been that way. And you have this since the status quo, in which uh, uh, Ben-Gurion gave... Uh, the religious community. He needed them to be part of his uh, coalition, so to speak, back then in order for the UN to grant him statehood. And he promised the Haredim a number of things in order to be able to do so, which was a relatively small group back then, but he promised them that the Rabbanut would run kashrut, that the Rabbanut would run marriage and divorce, and that the Rabbanut would run things going on at the Kotel, and that there would be the status quo of the Haredim exempt from, from the army. Um, but there is now a marriage of church and state, so to speak, shul and state, if you will, in the land of Israel. And that makes it into, in some ways, right? There's this, like the status quo. In, in some places, buses don't run on Shabbos, and in some places, they do. And it all was based on what was the status quo from 1948. If buses didn't run in a certain town, then they still don't now. But if they do, they do now. And it's a very complicated dance in which currently, right now, what it is, is a little bit of both. In some ways, it's just a state like every other state. And in some ways, it's an actual Jewish state. And as things are right now, everybody who lives there is like, this is the way that it is. Some people want it more Jewish. Some people want it more like a state. But it is what it is. This reform has the potential to drastically change the dynamics of that dance that's being done right now to create a more Jewish state. And, and that is a, a major, major issue. Now, those who are... One other, another point that has to be said at this point. The Haredim who have been part of the, 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 the yeshivish world, the... Um, the I'm just blanking uh, for a second. The... Hasidim, excuse me, um, have until this point in their role in government, primarily, this is an oversimplification, have primarily really only cared about getting money for their schools and yeshiva than staying out of the army. That's been a mostly when the Haredim, whoever's representing them in government, has been there and has simply wanted their particular needs, you know, which refer to those major two issues, army and money and funding. 
the religious Zionist community that has now taken power, not the entirety of it, but the more nationalistic aspects of it, if you will, have a, um, a redemptive uh, perspective on moving the state actively towards redemption and making it a Jewish state. And that means moving aside Arabs, creating settlements in, in, and, and other halachic aspects that are not just to protect the needs of the Hasidim until this point who have wanted laws really just, they just want to be protected. They haven't really been so interested in, in uh, impacting others. Just leave us alone and let us do our thing. Again, a simplification. But this new element has a vision of creating much more of a nationalistic, religious home for all. Now, as a religious Jew, as a rabbi, I speak, that's my goal, that's my vision, that's my dream. But I don't, I'm not, I don't, again, I'm in the States, but like not everyone who has that dream that that's the end goal believes that it's our job to do that now. Right now, the country is mostly secular. So it's this dance, but this group in government right now is pushing towards it. This has, when you talk about like what's really going on, when you talk about what, what's, why are they in the streets? This is one of the major fault lines, one of the major issues that has really just exploded, the rift in Israeli society between the secular, who have like, tolerated, if you will, some of the religious laws that exist right now, like unwillingly, but like, okay, and the religious who want more, and if you take away the Supreme Court ability to protect the rights of its citizens and you let the government pass whatever it wants and it's being led by uh, Ben Gvir and Smotrich and others who are pushing an agenda, the, the, not just the left, but all secular Israelis have a well-founded fear that there will be what they like to refer to as religious coercion will become law. And halacha, and not just any halacha, might be Haredi or Hasid, we don't know what, well, halacha will dictate the laws of the state. Now again, as religious Jews, like uh, that's eventually the end goal. I'd love to have a Torah society in Israel. But right now the seculars are like, why is this guy, Tamar Ben-Gvir, going to tell me how to live my life and legislate it that it will become illegal for me to do the things that I wanted to do until now? That's the great fear and the great fight for the soul of the country, if you will, that's taking place between the right and the left and the secular and religious. And I don't even put on all the religious. Some of the religious are like, also like, I don't know that this is the way that we're supposed to be doing it. But each side is claiming democracy. The left is saying, this is not democracy. It's going to become this, these tyranni- tyrannical rulers are going to impose all sorts of uh, laws on us uh, that we don't want. They don't even have a majority. They just have 61 votes. But nobody, there wasn't 61% of the, of the country voted for this, this group and that group. You take it all together, they cobble together a, uh, they cobble together a, uh, uh, a government to be able to, a uh, coalition to be able to do this. Um, and the aspects on the pro-reform groups are saying, no, we're democracy because we're the group that was voted for and therefore we represent the will of the people. This is what the people voted for. If you stop us, which is what you're doing right now by protesting the strike, shutting down the airport, you're the anarchists who are not allowing the democratic process to carry itself out. We are the will of the people. So both sides are claiming democracy. Both sides are claiming they're what the people want. And both sides are driven by great, in, on, the, on the right of, of the past history, of the last 40 years, the pendulum has been against us. Why can't you accept that the pendulum has, has shifted? And on the left, by great fear of what's going to be 
what is, what's going to happen. And uh, this is, as we see on the streets, the streets are literally on, uh, on fire. Let me just close. Uh, many of the speakers pointed out that the Hebrew word for crisis, which is what Israel is going through right now, is the word mashber. And that the root of the word mashber, crisis, is really a birthing stool in biblical language and in old uh, Talmudic language. A woman, al-hamashber, is a woman in, uh, in labor. And as many of the speakers pointed out to us, that, that's very apropos because until recent modern medicine, a woman in labor was in a life and death situation. You didn't know what was going to emerge from that particular crisis, whether or not it would be life and the birth of a child or Rahman al-Tzana Hashem should save us from the death of the mother during what was a terrible situation. And so a lot of the speakers pointed out that Israel in this moment is al-hamashber, literally. This crisis is a literal old-fashioned mashber, whether or not it's going to be a constitutional moment, which will birth a constitution for the country, a bill of rights for the country, and will let them move forward with a clear set of guidelines, or Rahman uh, al Hashem should save us from uh, the other side of the, op- of the option in which it will just shred and tear the country apart uh, in a way that might be irreparable as far as, as, far as the unity and actus within the, uh, the situation. The most likely outcome is neither of those two. They'll just put a Band-Aid on it and kick the can down the road and try to figure out later. It won't be a constitutional moment. It won't destroy the country. And they'll figure out a way uh, to move forward uh, without either of those two happening. I, I concluded my original talk uh, by mentioning that the, taking the mushal of the mashber, of the birthing stool, one step further, you know, when a woman is, is in labor, it's like it's her journey. The, a husband can't do anything to help her. <laughs> she's, she's going, I, I, you, I, as, I, as I said, having been through this several times, Baruch Hashem with my wife, it's the most helpless feeling a husband has is seeing his wife in terrible agony and pain and there's really nothing you can do. I can't take one of the contractions for you. But there are a couple of options. A husband can be present. A husband can be there, can be holding a hand, uh, soothing, uh, words of encouragement. In other cultures, a husband can be in the waiting room. He's, he's aware that there's something going on, but he's not up to date. He doesn't really keep track. He, do, he doesn't know. He doesn't hear. He's, he's davening. He's waiting. He's yearning, but he's not there. But the worst situation is if a husband doesn't even know his wife is in labor and she's going through this crisis and he's on the golf course. He, he's oblivious to the entire thing. So I said, you know, until recently, I think most of the American Jewish community was on the golf course. Our, our homeland is in crisis. Our homeland is in fire. It's al-hamashber, literally. And we have no idea what's going on. We don't even know what the issues are. And uh, hopefully now that we'll, we'll move from the golf course to the waiting room. And even better than that is really figuring out a way to, to hold the hands of our brothers and sisters and let them know that this is your journey. Like we really can't solve this problem at all from afar. But to know that we're there, we care, we're interested, and in some way uh, hoping to help. I concluded my words by, it was Parshas Vayakal Pekude, the building of the Mishkan. There are two forms of unity. One is the menorah, which is a single piece of gold fashioned and shaped and carved into the ornate uh, menorah, which it is, but it really intrinsically is one. But there's another type of achlis from the Urios, the coverings that were made to cover the actual Mishkan. There were 11 different covers that had hooks and clasps that would connect them together. And the Torah describes 
that you're going to make these karsein nechoshes, these copper clasps that will hold them together, lechaberes ha'oel lihiyos echad. To hold the Mishkan together, and the, the Torah uses the language to become one. They're different, they're distinct. There are 11 different pieces that are just being held together, but if you can hold yourself together, that's another form of unity, and we should be zocha to see, really, all of our brothers and sisters in Israel figure out a way to come to the middle ground. There needs to be reform. It needs to be a new one that people are protected, that people don't feel that they've lost their rights, and that uh, a calm... A calm can, can, pers- can, can just pervade over the land and it should be a Pesach kosher v'sameach for everybody and a Mirza Hashem, a, a resolution that will, uh, that will work and bring achdus uh, to the country.